morning, everybody. I'm so glad and happy to be here today with um, somebody who also hosts a podcast. who's called the Godless Granny. I mean, I don't, I don't know that you're you you put your name out there, but I she do. does. I do. Oh, okay. I, I make no secret of myself uh, of my real name. It is Kelly, and a few people call me Kelly. Most people call me Granny, but okay, Granny. <laughs> but um, feel free to call me Kelly if you prefer. I mean, what do you prefer? I, I'm good with either one. Okay. Well, uh, so this is Kelly, also known as Granny. How, whichever way you want to refer to her is fine. And we are so grateful because Kelly is somebody who I met randomly through another mutual party. And one of the things that we discovered is that at one point in time, Kelly joined a liberal Anabaptist church. So with that being said, we're going to discuss today what that was like and some of the language and ways that things were back then versus today. Would you like to say good morning? Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So from, thank you. And so from what I understand, like you joined a very liberal church. And when I say liberal, what I'm thinking is like, you know, as an Amish definition, which is more or less like me um, thinking of them from the Amish perspective, which means mm -hmm. they're so far out there, y'all. It's like they're so worldly. We just don't even know. We feel like they might have lost their way a little bit. They they just, they, they fit in with the world almost. You can't even tell that they're following Christ. Like, I, I just, I just want you to know that. <laughs> like that's that's what we defined as liberal Mennonites. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, well, we certainly did not see ourselves as liberals uh, at the time that I was a member of the church, uh, which was between 1990 and 2011. Um, this was before the great divide between the liberals and the and the conservatives, and being called a liberal was not the insult that the conservatives consider it to be today. You know, it was just simply a different perspective. Now, on that, you know, so in comparison with people outside the church entirely, the unbelievers, what, when we compared ourselves with them, yeah, we definitely considered ourselves conservatives. But on the other hand, when we compared ourselves with the rest of the Mennonites and the Amish, we definitely consider ourselves liberal. In fact, that was even written into the slogan of the church at the time. No way. You're yeah. kidding. Was uh, I can't remember exactly how it went, but in the essentials, unity, in the, oh yeah, here it was. In the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. That was the slogan of the church was that if it wasn't in the Bible, we should be liberal about it. And so we did have some liberalism written right into our church slogan. <laughs> okay, that's, that's, that's actually quite hilarious, don't you think? <laughs> <'Cause>... 
because we're looking at it through these two different lenses and when you contrast them it's such a different view like us it's like we looked at it as like these this group of people is so um out there and y'all are more looking at it like humanity from a humanity perspective. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's because there was a huge push from our church to try to bring in unbelievers. Um, and we weren't trying to convert the converted. We were not trying to draw people from other Christian faiths. We were trying to draw from people who had no faith at all. And so if we were going to be as conservative as the other Amish, I'm sorry, the other Mennonites, you know, in demand that people dress a particular way and wear their hair a particular way and refrain from doing certain things. Um, we felt that that would, that would be a turnoff to the outside world. And we were trying to bring the outside world into our church. Uh, evangelism and missions was a huge focus of the church. See, I was old order Amish, so we didn't do any of that. So like hearing about evangelism and missions is always interesting to me. Share more about like how that would happen. Like were there expectations of you as a church member? That was something that changed drastically during the time that I was at the church. Um, While I was, when I first came to the church, the only expectation was that you, you know, participate in the church and, you know, you, you attend church and you get involved in church activities. And um, there weren't any specific uh, expectations. The There was always push for giving. Um, you know, whenever a missionary would come, there was a push to, you know, provide more support for this missionary um, a, a good percentage of the church budget went to supporting missionaries. Um, but one thing that really shifted toward the latter years that I was in the church was the push that, hey, we need more people to do the work of evangelism. And the thing that eventually pushed me out of the church was when the church adopted the attitude, the church isn't for you. The church is for outsiders. We are not here for you. I'm sorry, what? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I was I was teaching Sunday school and I was um, leading children's church and they wanted me to work in the nursery too. And I said, if I do that, I can't go to worship. And I said, well, worship isn't for you. It's for the people we're trying to bring into the church. You don't have to go to worship. And that that was what that was what finally drove me away from the church. And when I first heard that, I thought this was our church leadership. And I went to some of the the elders, some of the people who had been members of the church for 30, 40 years. And I asked them about that. And they said, Yeah, that's our pastor. And you know, we we were here before him. We'll be here after him. He'll be gone eventually. And so don't worry about that. And so I put that on the back burner and figured, you know, this is something I've just got to wait out this pastor's term for because most pastors don't wait for more than six, seven years before they move on. But then um, I went to a denominational conference. And the reason I went is because at the denominational conference, 
Um, they have uh, quizzing con contests. The youth do Bible quizzing. And I had two kids that were pretty good, doggone good at it. In fact, I had one daughter that was the, known as the queen of, of um, location. Mm -hmm. Location meant, you know, they would, they would read the first five words of a verse and you jump up and tell where that verse is located. And my daughter memorized about six books of the Bible. And the, each, each year there was, there was always, there was one book of the Bible that they were focused on. And so she would memorize whatever book it was that they were doing that year. So over the years, she ended up memorizing several books of the Bible and she, she was really good. So we were at the conference and she was competing. And when I heard the keynote speaker, that's when I realized we had a serious problem because the keynote speaker said the same thing that my pastor was saying. Church is not for you. It's for the people outside. And that's when I said, no, <laughs> I don't go to church to work so I can bring other people to church. I go to church to worship and to fellowship. And if, if church isn't about worship and fellowship, then what, what good is it? I think to me, that's really mind boggling that any church would adopt that kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. Because when you think about churches, what are they proposed to be? What do they purport themselves to be? They purport themselves to be a place where you convert the unconverted into believers. Um, the, the mission of the church was to bring you know, to, to turn unbelievers into missionaries, basically, um, to, to grow and to plant more churches and to, to bring more people into the fold. So this was a Mennonite church, right? Okay. Now, that's interesting. And I did do a little bit Started of- Started off, right? Yeah. Um, I looked into the history of the, of the, the um, denomination that they are a part of and are still a part of because I, I did not know some of the roots of, of the, the church. I did know that when we first joined the church, excuse me, um, they were part of the evangelical Mennonite churches. And when we first joined the church, my husband was active duty army. And so we asked them, um, are we even allowed to come here? Because yeah. He's army and you Mennonites are generally uh, not good with that. And they said, oh, oh, it's okay. It's okay. Even though we have Mennonite in our name, you know, we do not abide by a lot of the Mennonite traditional requirements. And sure enough, you know, you look at the women and none of them are wearing the, the pr plain printed dresses and nobody's, there were one or two women that always wore a head covering in church but the vast majority of the women never wore prayer caps and um, never tied up their hair the way the Mennonite women did in the, in the area. So we definitely distanced ourselves from the other Mennonites. Um, and one of the things, one of the first things that the church did while I was there was they had a discussion over the sign out front, which said Brookside Church uh, evangelical Mennonite. And they said, you know, the name Mennonite is kind of a turnoff. And if, if our point is to try to bring in the lost, let's get rid of that. So they took the evangelical Mennonite off the sign and just had it say Brookside Church. And eventually this became a denomination thing because the, 
you know, they, they, they had the same problem throughout the denomination. So eventually the denomination changed its name from Evangelical Mennonite to Fellowship of Evangelical Churches. They still have the same Anabaptist roots, but they have been trying to distance themselves more and more from the Mennonites. Okay, but, like, did they also change their philosophies to not be congruent with their earlier Anabaptist philosophies? Yes and no. I mean, I don't think that happened at that time. But very slowly over time, um, there you know there were minor changes here and there. For example, um, you know I was looking at the history of the Fellowship of Evangelical Churches, and the biggest change came when okay the, the, they came from the Egli Amish in 1908. Uh, let's see what was his name. I can't remember his name, but there we go. Well, it just says Bishop Egley. I don't know his first name, but he lived in Bern, Indiana. And Bern is just a little bit south of Fort Wayne where I was living. Um, and he started, you know, this, this group that eventually adopted the name the Defenseless Mennonite um, <laughs> because they wanted to distance themselves from the Amish. I'm sorry. Hold <laughs> <laughs> the defenseless Mennonites. Right, because they were still very, um, what's the word? When you're anti-war and... Um, um, pacifist. Thank you. They were very they, embroiled they, they were, in pacifism. They were still very grounded in pacifism, right? So they call, that's why they call themselves the defenseless Mennonites. Yeah, I, I think it's kind of a funny name too, but that's, that's what they were. And... Um, uh, one of the things that happened was they shunned uh, education. They felt that education caused you to become more worldly and you were likely to turn away from your faith. But as the church started to get into the idea that they wanted to be more missions and cross-cultural missions, which happened around the, the turn of the century, around the, you know, the early 1900s, they were trying to get into that. They, they realized that their lack of education was holding them back from their own goals. And so that's when they started changing their ideas with regards to education. And that's, that's where the changes began, was, was as they changed their focus from uh, toward evangelism. And a lot of the idea changes that came within the church all came because Hey, if we're going to reach people outside the church, we can't X, Y, Z. Gotcha. So they eventually basically evolved and changed and became a group that not only abhorred pacifism as the end all be all, they welcomed members that were active duty military. Mm-hmm. 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 And they... The only lines that they would they would draw by the time I got there was lines that were definitely in the Bible. For example, gay people were not welcome because, you know, the Bible says you can't be gay. So gay people were not welcome. Oh, okay. One of the things what I if, found... Oh, go ahead. One of the things I found interesting in the history of the church was... Um, how following World War II, they wanted to distance themselves from their German roots. And 
I found this interesting because I have been to Burn, Indiana, very, very lots of times. And when you I've, drive into town, I've been there. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it's this, a historic Swiss community, and they they celebrate their That's, Swiss heritage. Well, and not only just that, but to be fair, the Swiss Amish, they're they they actually speak Swiss German. They don't speak PA mm. Dutch. Okay. They have a whole different language from the rest of the Amish that they speak. And we can't even speak our own languages to each other. We have to speak English to each other. So that's really interesting. So how did they accomplish that, distancing themselves from their German roots? Um, I'm not really sure. I, they did say that they, they dropped any speaking of, of the German language. You know, it, it went, you know, only English. That, that was one thing they did. Um, okay. Are you all right? Yeah. I'm just checking this website that has the history. Oh, fun. Yeah. Um, but no, like it's, it's so, it's also so intriguing to me because you talk about this Amish guy who like leaves his church and goes and starts a Mennonite church when historically the Amish people came from the Mennonites. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that's really interesting. Yep. Does, is there any information out there on like why he would, do that like what what was the purpose behind that well i no i i really don't know i really don't know um yeah that's it, it does say he had a desire to be known more mennonite than amish oh okay well i mean to each their own sometimes mm -hmm. people just really it doesn't serve them where they're at. But the other thing is, is that within Amish churches, you know, if you disagree with leadership, um, what are your options? Like, I don't know how, it, what that looked like for you as a Mennonite, but like for us, the options were very clearly like you could maybe move to just, just deal with it. It is what it is. You know, it's the Lord's will. Um, or you could, maybe move to another community or if like another community was maybe closer to what you felt was right for you. Um, or even some people would get groups of people together and they would start a new community. So you didn't really have a lot of options because. Yeah, it was very different where I was because um, we, we even had a term for people who move from church to church. We called them recycled saints. Um, and they had no problem with recycled saints. If, if you wanted to transfer in from another church, you, you know, you were more than welcome. And if you disagreed with what the church was saying, you were more, more than welcome to move down to a different church down the road. Um, there, there wasn't any, the, the there... tribalism didn't go to the church doors. So there were no consequences necessarily. Like, were there, was there like social shunning or like removal no, of, nothing of like relationships that. that people lose relationships if they went to the church down the road because that church was maybe more what they felt was, was right for them. 
No, if if somebody went down to the church down down the road, we said, "Oh, the Lord was leading them in a different direction." Oh, and that was perfectly fine. Oh, so then it, in in your church, that was the Lord's will. Right. Well, but you, it, you know, it could be the Lord's will for you to go to, to a different church. Maybe it's the Lord's will for you to go off and start a mission. Maybe it's the Lord's will for you to, to you know, you found another church that needs to be evangelized and they don't have their doctrine right. So, yeah, you, but go off to that church. Or, or maybe the Lord just has a, has a ministry for you in a different church. So, yeah, you, you know, you are free to leave the church and leave the denomination or whatever, as long as you remain a believer. Oh, so... Your name, Godless Granny, implies mm -hmm. that you're no longer a believer. No, definitely not. So what changed? Okay. This came long after I left that church because I went from that church to a Calvinist church. And I was in the Calvinist church for about 10 years. And then we moved um, to Alabama. And when we came here, I had a hard time finding a church. We went to some Baptist churches. We went to a couple of um, of um, uh, Episcop not, not Episcopalian. Um, uh, yeah, I'll look it up while we're talking. But anyway, um, you went to a variety of churches. Yeah, we went to a variety of churches. Uh, I can't talk and type at the same time. <laughs> that's quite interesting presbyterian there we go we went to a couple of presbyterian churches and part of the reason we went to presbyterian churches was by this time i was convinced that calvinism was the more correct understanding of the bible and the presbyterians are more in line with the calvinist point of view um we we went for a while to a mega church and we were we were in one of the satellites so we never really got to know the the lead pastor all that well because he was at the he was at the main site although he did come to the the satellite uh, church sometimes when he wasn't there we were watching his sermon on a big screen up front and. Um, after a while, though, there were some things going on in that church that really bugged me, particularly when Donald Trump came to power. Um, we saw a lot of bigotry and, you know, people, it, it just blew my mind the way people were excusing his lying and his uh, adultery and, you know, putting him out as, you know, the end all be all. And I'm like, this, this isn't Christianity. He's not a Christian. And it just, it really bugged me. I'm, my views had become increasingly liberal to the point where I kind of kept my mouth shut when it came to social issues, because I knew that how I felt about things was just so out of line with the way most people in the church felt that it was better just to keep it to myself. And, and that was not difficult to do because most of the time we didn't talk about politics. Um, but eventually, you know, it did get to be enough of an issue. And the big thing that really pushed me out of that church was the pastor kept saying at almost every service, you know, you've got to be evangelizing. You've got to be telling other people about Christ. You've got to be bringing them into the church. But on the other hand, he was also ridiculing anyone who wasn't a believer. You know, he was making fun of anyone who's out on the golf course saying, I could, 
I can have a religious experience on the golf course. And I'm going, how can I bring an unbeliever into this church so that you can ridicule them? I would be embarrassed to bring an unbeliever to your church. And that's that's the point where I realized I had to leave because I said, yeah, that's crazy that I, I'm embarrassed to bring a visitor to my church. And so then we went to another Presbyterian church, and that's the last church I, I was at, but we never actually became a member of that church. Um, I never got as into that church as I usually do. Um, I did meet with the pastor because I was definitely having feelings that I didn't understand about my faith. And unfortunately, the pastor did not pick up on what I was really asking her. Because really what I was telling her was I was beginning to question whether any of this is true. Mm-hmm. Although I didn't word it that way, and I didn't even see that that's what was going on. But unfortunately, she didn't pick it up either. Um, and so her answers to my questions were kind of flippant and, and non-existent. But on the other hand, had she picked up on that that's where I was, I don't think she would have had any answers for me anyway. Um, so I started thinking more and more about my faith. And one of the things that I really reasoned over was the conversion of Paul. And when I thought about that, I ended up at the divine hiddenness problem because I thought, you know, the Bible claims that God wants everyone to know him. Now the Calvinists say that he doesn't, he only wants the elect. And that never really completely sat well with me. You know, why would God create people that he doesn't want? That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, But when I started thinking about the conversion of Paul, I said, you know, if God wanted everyone to believe in him, all he would have to do is the same thing that he did for Paul, essentially. He would know exactly what it is that prevents anyone from believing in him, and he could present whatever it is that that person particularly needs in order to draw them to himself. So either A, God doesn't want everyone, or God isn't able to bring everyone to himself, which is essentially the divine hiddenness problem. Although I did not know that until several years later. And while, so when I came to that, I kind of changed my theology and essentially became a universalist at that point, because I thought there is no way that a loving God would look at a person and say, you know, you didn't understand who I was. And because you didn't understand who I I am, You didn't believe in me. So now you're going to spend eternity in hell for not knowing what I never revealed to you. Yeah, I I could not see that as as a coherent concept. So I believed that after death, everyone would get an opportunity to sit down with God one-on-one where God would lay out everything and you would understand everything. And then you would be allowed to make an informed choice. I want to live with you for eternity or I don't. And that's where I came to. But I still held to biblical inerrancy, and this is the key to why I don't believe, because I was a biblical inerrantist. Is that a word? Um, And then my son came to me and said, Mom, you know, the flood never happened. What do you mean? And he said, well, for one thing, the poop on on the boat would have suffocated them all. And I knew a little bit about this because in the area where I grew up, I occasionally rode my bike past a pig farm and you could smell that pig farm before you could see it. 
And I had read that if you close the doors on a barn with a bunch of pigs in it, the pigs will all die because the methane gas from the pigs would, would suffocate them. You have to have them in open air. So I thought, well, maybe that's true. So I looked it up. And not only did I find about three different websites verifying that, um, I also found websites talking about all kinds of other issues with Noah's Ark. And so then my son showed me a video, which was Aaron Ra uh, at an Ark protest. And he was saying, we know that the flood didn't happen. We know this from history. We know it from biology. We know it from geology. We know it from, uh, I've, I've, I, think he, I think he says mythology. But anyway, the one that hit me was history because it suddenly clicked that I know from ancient history that there is no 100-year period when the entire planet was devoid of human life. And I know from the flood story that allegedly eight people land in Babylon and for 100 years they never disperse until after the Tower of Babel. And so if this story was true, then every civilization on the face of the earth would have to have been wiped out and there would have to be no human artifacts for an, a 100 year period. And that isn't true. And that's what I knew for sure. The flood did not happen. Not that it cannot happen. It did not happen. Okay. So one of our listeners said, good on you. When, way back when, when you were talking about the pastor, I have several comments, which thank you for sharing all of that. It sounds like some of it could have been a little bit um, alienating and isolating, almost like you were, you mentioned being, feeling like you were being pushed out of churches. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then, like, were you ashamed of your church? Like, oh, yeah. There was were a there couple a of churches I left because I was ashamed of the pastor or ashamed of the church. And I mean, like, so, so here's a, here's a question. Like, if like you do, let's just say hypothetically, you do believe in the Bible, right? And you believe that God made everybody in his own image and light. So, I mean, did he, did he in fact make gay people? Did he did do he, what? Did he make gay people? Oh, okay. If well, he made, let's just say yeah. hypothetically, if you believe mm -hmm. in that, did mm -hmm. he make gay people? So if God made gay people, so then why are your churches questioning God's creation? Well, their, their response to that would be, well, God also made people that are alcoholics, but God made people who are, uh, you know, prone to theft. Everybody is, is drawn to sin. Some people are just different, drawn to different sins and everyone needs to work on overcoming their sin problem because everyone has a sin problem they want to work on. And the reason that they see homosexuality as being different is because they say they're not even trying. You know, at least the alcoholic recognizes he has a problem and is trying to control his drinking, but but a gay person isn't even trying to limit their sexual relationships with gay people. They don't understand that, that that's not the same thing. That's not even remotely close to the same thing. Mm -hmm. Not, not even remotely close. But then what about the unbelievers? Didn't God also make the unbelievers? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they see it, you know, God made the unbelievers, but they made the believers with the job of, converting the unbelievers. And if there are unbelievers, then that means the believers aren't doing their job. 
and you know those believers need to be praying and preaching and working harder because they're they're just not getting the job done wow everything that goes wrong is man's fault everything that goes right is god's doing oh is is that so mm -hmm. but when you're sitting there and you're like your pastor was 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 talking about and and mocking the unbelievers do you think that he saw them as human beings worthy of love and compassion oh no empathy no and basic no. human rights no not at all so at that point what makes him better than any unbeliever good question good question isn't he holding himself as better by doing so definitely but he would say the reason i'm better is because i've been washed in the blood i've been forgiven yes i'm a sinner but you know i've been forgiven and you haven't you need that that that's what he how does say. he know that i haven't been forgiven well i'm assuming that you've does told he have a stool on the right hand of god i i'm assuming you've told him that you're an unbeliever and you know anyone who's an unbeliever is obviously unforgiven but does he, was he hired? Is there a job application out there where I can apply to be that judge that this pastor is being right then in that moment? Because it sounds like he, he's saying he's the judge mm -hmm. and he gets to decide who's worthy in this. He wouldn't say it that way. But because that's he what say he's everyone's, doing. He'd say you are worthy because, you know, you're able to do it. But you, you you just don't have it yet. Uh, but you have to decide that because he knows my heart. Mm -hmm. Even though he's a mere man, just like me. He's just a mm -hmm. human being. Mm -hmm. Did he, did he, again, did he apply for a job where he gets to sit and have the ear of God? Like, is God speaking to him? What makes him Oh, he would definitely say yes. Did, did he apply for this? And how is God speaking to him? I, I think he would say that you don't apply for it, but as soon as you become a believer, God will speak to you. Because That's allegedly funny. the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of you. And so the Holy Spirit will speak to you at any time. That's funny because I begged the Holy Spirit. I begged. Mm -hmm. If the Holy Spirit existed, it didn't give a shit about me. Mm -hmm. Sorry, not sorry. That's... But it's also like one of those things. So who is he to decide? Because if you truly believe, you understand that you are not the one. Because doesn't the Bible also tell you, judge not, lest you be judged by the same measure? Mm-hmm. I mean, like, I, I just find so much hypocrisy in that. Isn't, isn't that hypocritical? Yeah, they wouldn't see it that way. But yeah, the, the, there's no question that that's true. Why wouldn't they see it that way? You'd have to ask him. You'd have to ask him. <laughs> also, I love your like coming back with like, let me argue this from the case of somebody in the church. It's so great because it's, it's easy to do, you know, having been there so long. I was a believer for 42 years and oh that's not from birth. You know, I converted at 16. Oh my. See. I was born into it and mm -hmm. then I escaped and then it took me a while, but I, I'm, I found my way and 
found a way to make my life meaningful, but also like going back to what you were talking about with the churches, you know, and feeling ashamed and feeling like you can't be open and you can't be your authentic self. Like what changed that you were able to find a way to live your life in a way that made sense to you? And what changed when you did that? I did not go through some of the major changes that a lot of unbelievers do. And part of the reason for that is because I was always the one that was driving the train um, for belief. Um, my Christian life was my life. I mean, this this was the driving force in everything that I did. I I was at church twice a week. I was teaching Bible study. I was... And early in my marriage, you know, my husband said, why can't we just be pew sitters? Why, why do we have to do all this? But I really felt that this was what God wanted me to do. So when I deconverted and I no longer believed, I think my husband is actually happier because now he gets to be just a pew sitter like he wants to be. And the pandemic was, was a great thing for him because now he can go watch his church on his computer and an hour and a half later, he's done watching church and he never even leaves the house. He doesn't have to get dressed. He, it, it doesn't require much commitment on his part. So I'm still married to a believer, although I would call him a rather nominal believer only because, you know, it's, it's not his life the way it was mine. And my family has always been half and half. My parents were unbelievers Mm -hmm. Um, my older brother is an unbeliever. My sister is a devout Catholic. Mm -hmm. Um, so when I stopped believing, it was not that big a deal. I just moved from this side of the family to that side of the family. <laughs> um, I think it was the hardest for my sister to attach to accept than anyone else. The person that I most expected to have a problem with it though, was my oldest daughter because she is a devout believer. You know, she followed in my footsteps of, you know, we go to every church service and we're involved in the activities and, you know, she is still there and that's mm -hmm. where she is with her kids. Um, but we have had a very strained relationship since long before I deconverted. In fact, when I deconverted, I tried to sit down with her and tell her about it. And never was given the opportunity to say anything about myself and the entire conversation. She, you know, she keeps the entire conversation all about her. So I finally accepted, you know, okay, she doesn't want to know anything about me in my life. Fine, I won't share it. You know, she's not interested. Um, eventually, I finally did send her a text message at one point telling her that I'm not a believer anymore. But our relationship was already so strained that it really had no effect. Um, my middle daughter, she was a kind of sort of believer. And so when I told her I didn't believe anymore, it, it really didn't make much difference to her. And of course, my son had already deconverted. Um, and by my deconversion, that allowed my son to come out as an unbeliever. And eventually he came out as transgender as well. Um, so change some relationships, but it didn't actually result in you, um, I, I guess, in feeling like shunning or, or excommunication. I did have one friend that had been a friend all the way back to 
that church, the Mennonite church. You know, I met her there. Mm -hmm. And she was the one that moved to the Calvinist church and convinced me to come over to the Calvinist church. And we were friends for quite some time. And when I told her that I was an unbeliever, she cut off all communication and has never spoken to me since. But she's the only one. But by then I had moved to Alabama and she had moved to another state as well. And we were only speaking like twice a year at that point. So when she cut me off entirely, um, it wasn't that great a loss. It, it was, it wasn't like it was somebody you spoke to every day or you saw right. every month or you, you were close. You were, you weren't as close with them as you were per se when you were in the same church. Right. Right. Um, now, did you make like other connections that felt meaningful to you once that happened? I have on Twitter and I've made very, you know, very close connections with people that I see and I visit with them on podcasts and on live streams. Um, I did go to a group of free thinkers here in town, but the the pandemic killed that group. Oh, um, that's yeah. sad. Yeah. Um, I did try to get into a group of democratic women in my area but I ended up leaving them because they open all of their meetings with a devotional. And I'm like, this is supposed to be a Democrat group. Why do, why do we have to have a worship service at our democratic meeting? It's, that was the end of that. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. I can only imagine. How'd that feel? Just, just having that, like, this I, is I, a political thing, but it's being overtaken by, Religious well, beliefs. It obviously had been that way for quite some time. And I think a big part of it was um, there is not much atheism in the black community. And a lot of the democratic events in Alabama are driven by the black community because they more so they they are the largest demographic of of black people. I mean, of of Demo, of Democrats in this state, and that's why there's more Democrats in Birmingham than there are in Alabama because there's a larger black community. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it was always that way because they don't uh, they they did not give up religion the way we did, and so that they they just incorporate that as as part of everything that they do the way the way that I used to. And I really felt like as an outsider coming into a group, it's not my place to try to change this group. You know, I, this does not line up with what you claim are the goals of your group. But who am I as a newcomer to tell you how to run your group? That's fair. Some spaces mm -hmm. are not for you. Mm -hmm. I, I've definitely encountered that. And that is entirely too relatable. Like, I am not a place for everybody. And I know that. Mm -hmm. I also know that my space is not for everybody. But I think on some levels, when you go public with um, your life experiences and you speak about them openly and you're a truth speaker, like sometimes, you know, you choose very carefully what you want to be open about and what you want to fight about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that one, what you were talking about is you were choosing very carefully where your energy was going to go. That's how I see that. Mm. And, and I think that's a great thing because sometimes we have felt, many of us have felt pushed into doing things that 
we didn't really want to do, but we felt obligated to do. Mm-hmm. 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 We do have a question from one of our listeners. Um, does your sister watch your channels? Um, no, definitely not. <laughs> well, yeah, surely yeah. she would see how wrong religion is. Um, I don't religion know. Religion is a subject we never really talked about much because when I was a believer, some of the churches I went to said Catholics are not believers. They, 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 they just don't make the cut because their doctrine is just too far afield. They do not accept that the Bible is the sole authority. You know, they, they believe to, but other churches I went to, you know, would refer to them as our Catholic friends and yeah, they're misguided in some of their doctrine, but I'm sure we're misguided in some of our doctrine too. So, you know, we're, we're just all believers and we're just trying to find, find the correct path. Um, and I always felt that way about my sister. You know, if she's, if she believes in her faith, you know, fine, you know, it's a little different than mine and, and, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Although I did see some things that I found really hypocritical. Um, it, like I, I, um, had them over and it was Easter weekend and it was good Friday and we got pizzas and, my son is a vegetarian. So one of the pizzas was, a, two of the pizzas were vegetarian pizzas. And one of the pizzas was a meat pizza. And my niece and nephew each picked up a piece of meat pizza. And their father said, it's good Friday. Can't have that. So they immediately put it down and took some cheese pizza instead. Oh yeah, we can't eat meat on Friday. But then hearing some of the things that they say the rest of the week, I'm going, how is it that you are so holding to the doctrine of don't eat meat on Good Friday, but you really don't care about, you know, swearing and you know, just various other behaviors that are just not in line with your church? But I, I, I chuckled at that and I said that to myself inside, but I never said anything like that on the outside. I mean always interesting to go back and look at what we believed once or what believers you know what we believed once and what our actions were like and how we're implementing that like are our actions matching up with the actual teachings of what we believe or are they just being cherry-picked is the doctrine that we're following becoming something that I can agree with wholeheartedly? Or is it something that now I feel like is really hypocritical? Yeah. One of the things with my sister was that I always wondered whether she really believed any of it because she you know, was raised in the same secular home that I was and she converted to Catholicism when she fell in love with her husband and she couldn't get married in the Catholic church unless she was Catholic. And so she only converted so that she could get married to her husband. And so I, I never was sure whether she actually believed this stuff or she just went along with it so that she could get married. <laughs> well, okay. You, you mentioned like talking about Catholics or unbelievers. Let mm -hmm. me tell you what I thought about Catholics. Okay. Are you ready for the tea? Mm -hmm. This is mm -hmm. great. 
I thought the Catholics were idol worshippers. Mm, mm-hmm, and I have mm-hmm. to whisper it because it's so shameful. <laughs> I, I felt that way about the Orthodox Christian because they play to, they pray to their icons. Yeah, I mean, it's just... But then, like, I actually attended a Catholic church service, y'all. I, mm-hmm. I, I really did. No, the church did not, not burn down when they entered through its holy doors. However, come pause. <laughs> you know what I have to tell you? Catholic church services felt very familiar in many ways. There were a few differences, but ironically, I do believe that it is very apparent that the, the Amish churches came from the Catholic Church just by some of their ritualistic practices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right down to the, so we speak like PA Dutch and then our services and our sermons are in um, Hochdeutsch and we sing in Hochdeutsch to worship. Mm-hmm. So like all of this is like that, like kind of like, um, I guess you could say the sermons have evolved. Like some people will absolutely like implement PA Dutch into the sermons, but it's kind of like that, you know, with the Catholic Church. Like they they have their their things in in what Latin, Latin. Mm-hmm. like, and and then we had like actual kneeling prayers. Mm-hmm. So does the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Like that's always stuck out to me is like, it's so apparent, but then there's, there's like the rosary beads and we had nothing like that. Mm-hmm. And that was completely, and that's where I was like, Oh, this is why they think they're idol worshipers. This is why, this is why they're idol worshipers well, and they have these statues. And yeah. They don't actually pray to the beads. The beads help them keep the count of how many hail Marys they've said, because you're supposed to say hail Mary a certain number of times and then you're supposed to say our father a certain number of times. And you go through the rosary beads and, you know, you, hail Mary, hail Mary, hail Mary. And when you come to a different size bead, that tells you it's time to do an our father. I mean, <laughs> doesn't sound ritualistic at all <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> but anyway, so, so there's just that. But um, Oh, funny story from my Catholic days. Okay. Yeah, I told you I was raised in a secular home, and that's not entirely true. My parents were devout Catholic when I was very young. They left the Catholic Church when I was seven. And so I do have some memories of being Catholic when I was very young, but I don't count that much because I I never was Catholic at a time when I was old enough to really understand what it meant. But one of the funniest stories I've always... The hats, the straw hats that we had to wear as young children, they were terrible. The the chin strap was so itchy. And I remember one day we went to church and we weren't wearing hats. And I heard this little girl behind us say to her mother, why do I have to wear my hat? That little girl isn't wearing a hat. And, And her mother said, well, she has a bow in her hair, so it's okay. Yeah, the Catholic Church was still into that you have to have your head covered. But as long as you had a bow in your hair, that 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 was sufficient. You had your head covered. 
Wow. <laughs> you know, I think on my next coffee series, I might have a bow right here. Just, just to be there. I'm just really going to go there. Wow. Just how far have the mighty fallen? My, I'm, I'm, I'm really, that's, that's just amazing. Mm -hmm. The bow. The bow. I always find the Mennonite caps to be funny because... The, the verse that the verse that talks about women needing their hair covered, um, I heard one pastor give a sermon on it that said that the meaning of this verse is so elusive. You know, this verse could mean loose, it could mean tied, it could mean covered, and it could mean uncovered. We're, we're just really not sure what this verse means. And I thought, you know, the Mennonites they covered all the bases because they've got this little cap that covers a part of your hair. So some of their hair is covered and some of it is uncovered and they tie it up in a bun in the back. So some of it is tied, but the front of it is loose. We've, we've covered all the bases. It's loose. It's, it's tied, it's covered and it's uncovered. <laughs> well, well, but so, so like, Hold on, I want to show you something. I just, I got to show you this, because this is funny. I think it's funny. Because, for some reason, I just find myself with with this. So, I mean, do you recognize this? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But this is an Amish cover, right? Now, that's for... Out inside, and you wear a black bonnet over that outside. Is was that? That's the way the Amish in our area did it. You know, when they were okay. inside, they wore just the white cap, and when they went outside, they put a black cap over it. So we we have various different. There's a whole bunch of different coverings. Number one. Mm -hmm. So like this with the with the you see the lines going across like right here and right here. Mm -hmm. We weren't allowed to have that. Mm -hmm. That was too worldly. Mm. Okay. Now, um, the, it just had the straight lines, the straight lines across like this. Mm -hmm. Now, um, those, we were inside, um, we would wear them outside too. Mm -hmm. it, it wasn't just the we wore them inside, we would wear them outside too. But we would have those coverings, and we would put our hair up too. Mm -hmm. But then we would tie these, the strings, those were supposed to be tied properly. Like if you tied them a little bit far down your neck, you were you were crowding the fence. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing is, so you would have to, we were supposed to take two fingers and we weren't allowed to display more hair than two fingers. Mm. And there's like this phrase called like strulich, which is like meaning your loose hair. Um, something like that. I don't know, like your hair is just loose, but it was supposed to be parted directly in the middle. And then it was supposed to be neatly put back. And if it, you had like fringes of hair coming out, like that was considered like strobly and you just had too much hair out there and you needed to go fix it. But that was for that specific covering. So as a young child, you will wear a covering made with a different pattern. In some communities, you might wear a covering that's actually made out of a thicker fabric uh, that is made specifically for babies. Mm, like mm -hmm. we even little boys sometimes wear coverings as babies. Mm -hmm. Little boys wear dresses. Mm -hmm. 
And, and then as you get older, when your hair starts growing out, they start braiding your hair, then you get a different style of covering. And then you would have like a black covering for home that's made out of broadcloth and very specific style again. And, and then you would have another one that was made differently, more like this, but not mm -hmm. the same because your braids in the back are going to affect how that covering fits. And so it's going to have a different shape kind of sort of because of the braids making it misplace some of the things. And that's two, right? Three, four, something like that. Um, even so far as like in some communities, some of the coverings that the babies were to church, some mm -hmm. of like they weren't, they had to be made out of a very specific fabric compared to the ones that they were at home were different ones or the ones they were during the week. It was just, there's a lot of rules around coverings. And then we have a different covering that's called a schlofkopf, and that's what you sleep in. Mm -hmm. And the the black thing that you're talking about with like um, with what we put on to go outside. So if it's like, you know, going outside just for normal, um, some people, some communities, we were allowed to take off our covering and put on a headscarf, kopduch, as you will. It's a square um, piece of material made out of very specific fabric again. Um, different communities have different rules surrounding the colors of them some of them have bright green ones they were mm. worldly uh -huh. i can imagine so some of them have purple ones some of them have royal blue ones some of them are only allowed to have black ones some of them are allowed to have brown and and navy blue and it just it all depends on the community those are those those are the things that affect them but we would typically wear them some in some communities, they would take off the covering and you would put on the headscarf, the kopdu. In other communities, you would take off the covering, put on the headscarf, and then put the covering on on top of the headscarf. In other communities, you would put on the covering and leave it on and put the headscarf on top of the covering. There's a lot of rules, my friends. In mm -hmm. even other communities, you could take the headscarf and put it, like once you took the covering off, you could take the headscarf and tie it around the back, like how people wear a bandana like this. Like it, it's like here, right? Mm -hmm. And in other communities, that was absolutely not allowed. You have to tie it around your neck, like right here, your chin, like that part. Mm -hmm. And then once you got to be like, the right age, which was typically around the age of 12 or so, um, you would be required to, no longer was your hair being braided, you were going to use these pins. I don't know if y'all can see these, but mm -hmm. hair pins, right? Mm -hmm. They look like that. They would dig in your scalp and you would take a string and you would tie your hair and then you would fold it all up and then you would pin it in. And then you even had rubber bands to hold it in place. And then you started wearing more a white covering similar to this at home. There's other styles of coverings too that are called the box coverings and are widely pleated instead of this type of pits, we called it. Um, and then you would wear that white covering at home and during the week. When you went to church, you would wear, in one community I lived in, you would literally wear this exact model in black. 
mm-hmm. as an unmarried girl. And then once you got married, you'd wear this this style of covering in white all the time, except for sleeping, pretty much. So thanks for listening to my rant about coverings. (laughs) How did they get around the Bible verse that says you're not supposed to braid your hair? I don't make the rules. Look, we have men who told us what the rules were. Those men are the ones who know what the Bible means. Like, I can't pretend to understand that. I'm just a, 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 I was created to be a helpmeet. I was a lesser vessel and I can't possibly comprehend the Bible. Mm, Okay. (laughs) I'm sorry. It's okay. Way too many rules. I mean. What do you think about the, about those rules? I you know I I find them silly you know, <laughs> but you know it's it's not unexpected because the Amish have all kinds of silly rules. Um, you know, as having worked in an insurance company that mainly uh, sold insurance to uh, churches and to church related uh, businesses. Uh, one of the claims that I had was for an Amish contractor who owned a van and a couple of other things that some of the Amish aren't really (laughs) supposed to necessarily own. And when one of his employees stole the van and wrecked it, um, I, I was looking at the title to the van and the owner's name wasn't on the title. And I said, why, how can I pay you for this when you're not really the owner of the vehicle and he said well i had to title it in somebody else's name because i I, my order of amish doesn't allow me to own a vehicle so i own the vehicle but it's titled in somebody else's name Uh well i'm sorry i have to send the payment to them because their name is on the title they do that they Mm -hmm. really do that Mm -hmm. they will pay for everything and you know furthermore there's actually like amish for those who don't know now we're really getting into it um but there's actually amish who are allowed to own vehicles and go to college Mm -hmm. there's majority of what people think amish are and their perception of amish is based off of like old order amish or swartz and trooper amish or aptorier amish or bylar amish or you know any of the various different sects and they're not necessarily allowed to do this but some of them might i'm Mm -hmm. I'm just saying i i know i know you're not lying it's the truth I know Amish that do that. But with that being said, we're about to end this session. Do you have anything you'd like to tell people who may be struggling with feeling like the church might be pushing them out? If the church is pushing you out, go, you know, there's, there's no reason to stay. Um, if, if you really feel like you have to have some kind of a God belief, I, I would encourage you to check out a universalist church. Um, they are much more welcoming. They are much more, uh, open to any ideas and even to ideas that don't involve gods. Um, it depends on which universalist church you're going to, but, um, I, I really don't see any reason to believe in any gods. There's no evidence of any kind of supernatural activity going on. So I mean, if the church wants you out, say fine. Goodbye. <laughs> you know, 
I think that's beautiful because, like, here's the thing is, like, I want people to understand and know this is that you touch upon this a little bit in your statement is that just because I'm not a believer doesn't mean that I judge you for being a believer. In the same token, I love people from all walks and ways of life. And some of those people happen to be Christians, devout Christians. And it doesn't mean that I'm sitting here and saying you're wrong for not believing the same to talk openly about different people's spiritual experiences and their beliefs or their lack of belief. It simply means that we are all human beings and we all struggle with different things as we go through life. But it doesn't mean that any one of us is worth any more or any less than the other one. We're all human beings worthy of human rights. And if you're listening to this today, I'd like you to remember that you are worthy. Whether you believe it or not, I believe you're worthy. Have a beautiful Saturday. And thank you so much, Kelly. And I'd like to thank all of our Patreon subscribers for making this possible. I appreciate you. And I can't wait to see y'all back soon.